Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve with a mix of courses, content, coaching, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online today and join. Today, my guest is Martin Hunt, who I met 30 years ago in business school. Martin is a venture capitalist and is currently raising his own fund to invest in B2B technology businesses. Martin started his career in the financial services sector in the management development program at Prudential. He then went to business school at Harvard, during which time he worked as a research assistant for the renowned strategist Michael Porter. Following business school, Martin did stints as a consultant at AMS. He worked in the energy sector for a Chicago-based firm that was ultimately acquired by Exelon, went back to financial services and his home state of Delaware working for MBNA, which was later acquired by Bank of America. Since he left MBNA, he has been in private equity and venture capital. He started a search fund and ultimately used it to invest in a low voltage and fiber optic cabling company in Florida that he ran for a number of years. Along the way, Martin has served as a member of the HBS Alumni Club of Philadelphia and also volunteered for Harvard more broadly. He's involved in helping select scholarship recipients at his undergraduate alma mater, Swarthmore, as well. Martin earned his bachelor's degree in economics from Swarthmore and his MBA from Harvard. He and his wife live in Philadelphia and have a son and a daughter. Martin, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. So start at the beginning. Some of this I don't know about you. So where did you grow up and was your first paid job? Right, right. So I was born in 1968. I was named after Martin Luther King. I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania, but kind of raised in Newcastle, Delaware. Okay. And I'm living in Delaware today. So around the circle over a long period of time, I lived around the country and everything back in a different part of Delaware, focusing yeah. Delaware. Okay. First paid job. First paid job was cutting grass and snow shoveling. So I was always daddy's helper. Naturally, that came into cutting grass for my neighbors and the neighborhood and the same thing for shoveling snow. The first kind of real job that I considered a job was my freshman year summer. And it was a volunteer job at the University of Delaware, working with a Puma 5000 robotic arm. So that was my first kind of job with outside people that were supervising and everything like that. How did you decide to go to Swarthmore and why economics? Yeah, Swarthmore was a dream of mine. I applied to five schools, got in, but they all had a common thing of liberal arts. So like in 10th grade, I kind of knew I wanted to go to Harvard Business School. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. So I went to a liberal arts school. I wanted to make sure I went to a liberal arts school, majored in engineering for two years. Hmm. Didn't like it. Didn't think it was close enough to entrepreneurship and the things I wanted to do long term. And so I was like, I have to change. 
So I went to summer school at Harvard, knew that I wanted to go there. So I did odd jobs, took one course in economics, doubled up and graduated in economics. And that was kind of a negotiated major because I thought it was halfway between humanities and halfway between engineering. And it kind of, you made models to make sense of the world and things of that sort. And so that appealed to me based on what I wanted to do further on. Yeah. I'm amazed that you even knew about Harvard Business School in 10th grade. Yeah. Well, you know what? My grandfather would read the Harvard Business Review all the time. So every time I went there, it would just sit there. And every time I would hear a story of a entrepreneur, it was these Harvard guys. And it was a Harvard case study. And so I would read these case studies. And I was like, hey, you know what? I kind of want to be an inventor, invent things and do things like that with technology. And so it kind of made sense that that's where I wanted to go. Knowing Mm -hmm. that, hey, I wanted to be well-rounded and liberal arts and all that. I said, hey, finish off, go there because that's where the stories are made. That's where I meet people like you, right? So it was a dream come true. Clearly, I could have gone to other places and I would have if I didn't get the opportunity, but I got the opportunity and I think it was a good choice. Yeah. So I can remember distinctly when I first heard about Harvard Business School. I was a freshman at Duke. It was probably a month into the school year and they were looking for volunteers to do one of these phone-a-thon kind of things where you call out (laughs) to donors and you're asking for money. And so the woman sitting next to me was on talking to somebody that she knew. And she's like, oh yeah, so-and-so got into Harvard for his MBA. And after she got off the phone, I'm like, what's that? (laughs) And I literally had no idea. That was really the first place where I even understood that there was such a thing as business school. So I was pretty, pretty naive coming into it. So you decided you didn't want to do the engineering route and you ended up in economics. What did you envision yourself doing when you were still an undergraduate? What was your perceived professional path? Well, long-term, I thought I would be an entrepreneur or running a Fortune 500 company as a lot of the Harvard MBAs did, right? So it was one of those two. And in my thought process, it was build all the skills, do all the jobs, such that it gave you a good point of view on how to run a business well and kind of how to be a leader. And then you'll know which way your path will take you, Fortune 500 route or to start a business and do something like that. So I did a little bit of both. I'll tell you about how, you know, the wines and the roads. That we all have. That's right. That's right. Yeah. How'd you end up with Prudential? They had a management training program, advanced management development training program. And a lot of folks from Swarthmore College went there. And so it was a natural way that I thought I would learn some basic skills. A Fortune 500 company at that time, it's a big company, 100,000 people, credential was big. And the program was a rotational program. And so I thought I would get a general view of business and all that. You were in a rotational program. That's how it worked, right? So what do you feel like you got out of that relative to what you think you might have gotten just from a normal job? I'm always curious to hear how people... Amazing. Amazing. So first, you get a class, right? Or that comes in with you of these superstars from all over. So we had a class of 10 to 15 people. They came from all over. You got a chance to meet them. That was a great thing. You had a training program for six to nine weeks. And then you all went off and kind of did your different assignments. So that first part I thought was helpful for me to meet people from all different schools was very nice for me. And then I got a chance to do some absolutely stellar assignments. And those assignments, I think, 
kind of made the metal of kind of the person I am in terms of how things work. The first rotational program was Prudential Printing Press. And the executive VP comes to me and he says, hey, Martin, this will either be the hardest assignment you ever do, or you can just tell me you don't want to do it because it's at a printing press. Mm. And the goal was to go in and to help put in an activity-based costing system such that they can sell through press. And so I did that. And they had three unions to learn all that. I had to deal with the unions. It was 24-hour shifts. So I had to stay there at different times and things. I had to learn to deal with all different types of people. It was successful. You put in the costing system, things went well. They were able to sell the credential printing press, which at that time, I think was the largest one on the East Coast. And so for me, that had a little bit of the engineering, a little bit of the social mm. liberal arts, and a little bit of the future M&A that I kind of wanted to do. So it was a great assignment. Yeah. And so I got that from yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's a lot to throw a 22 or 23-year-old person into, right? Having to deal with different unions in a 24-hour a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, dealing with the unions was fun for me because my dad was president of the Teachers Association. Okay. And so I was familiar with negotiations and dealing with unions and things of that sort. And so it was really a blast to kind of be there and kind of work with them around providing, in my view, security for them, right? They knew that they were going to be sold. And my kind of role was to help them make the best of that situation as possible. And when people's jobs are on the line, I mean, that's where I thought business was really fun. When I first got to Prudential, the first thing they did in the first month or something was fire 10,000 people. Mm. So Mother Prue, like Mother IBM and all these folks, back then you go work for a company and you work forever. And this was the first wake-up call that was like, hey, you know what? The world just changed. Mother Prue is no longer Mother Prue. And I had to think about that as people would educate me on, this is important for me, Martin. Don't go home. I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I need to know that you're doing your very best. And so for me, I learned a lot. So it helps solidify the stakes for you. The stakes and also that it was real people. So right, right. you hear stories at that point in time, both of my parents were teachers, so they had a fairly stable road of it, right? When Prudential fired 10,000 people, a lot of people started to pull people out of college. And that was the first time I was like, oh, there's a correlation between what your parents do and what they can pay for and actually going to college. And so, yeah. yeah. So I was very aware of that and learned a lot. You mentioned that you had a few interesting rotations. What other things did you do? My second one was I was chief of staff for consulting services that what they did was they made smaller microcomputer systems that were on the front end and not on the legacy side. So Prudential had these football fields of mainframes and built on COBOL and all that. And the first kind of generation of GUI interfaces and very quick production of uh, things that worked was this group. And I got a chance to program. I got a chance to learn what that was. I got a chance to design, see this new kind of move from mainframes to kind of these WANs and LANs that people were starting to use, the AS400s and stuff, and putting software on the front end of what people could do and not just having to do this long legacy thing. So for me, because I was a techie for a long time, that was right up my alley. I mean, that's why what I'm doing now is fun because when I was early on, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
we were on a VIT-20, we were on a TRS-80, we we're building our own computers with two RAM. And the guy that I learned from in high school took us back to punch cards. Mm. So you understand punch cards to mainframes to where we are now to where I think we're going to go in terms of the internet and blockchain and all these other things that are nice and cool and just another look of that progression. I'm happy to say that I never used a punch card in my coding <laughs> days. I, I was probably this much after that in the scheme of things, but certainly a lot of people who are my contemporaries talk about using punch cards at school. By the time, for whatever, better or worse, we were using PCs. So PC revolution had already hit by the time I was at school. You were at the rich school, okay? Uh, <laughs> rich school, okay, okay. <laughs> says the man who dreamed of going to Harvard Business School as a 10th grader. That's right, that's right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. So you went to HBS, obviously. You were working for Michael Porter, who's obviously well-known for his Five Forces framework. What was it like working with such a renowned guy? I mean, he was the star of HBS at that point in time. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely awesome in every way. I feel honored and blessed to have worked for him, all that. I learned a lot from him. I still learn a lot from him in terms of the way I approach business, the value chain and all that stuff. Is It literally is the way I look and deconstruct and build back a business in order to get things done. Funny story, like I wanted the job to work for Professor Porter to work on initiative for a competitive inner city. I had done some work prior on that at Swarthmore College during my junior year summer. So I thought I knew a lot. I was competent, but HBS is a competitive place. Had a meeting with him, interview with him. We got into our different frameworks. He asked me about my framework. We went back and forth. We didn't agree. I mean, I felt that, oh my God, I'm getting into this conversation with this genius. And I disagree. And I'm telling him that I disagree. And we went back and forth. And at the end, I thought to myself, I am never getting that job. I am so far away from that job that I am so embarrassed that we went down that path where I throwed my cards, told him, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. Hey, you may be a little bit wrong with your frameworks and stuff, but let me explain it again. And we went back and forth. Professor Porter hired me. And I think that kind of tells you the type of person that he is, right? Mm. That A, the type of person he is, and B, the type of people that he wanted on his team to kind of push forward his kind of theory of the competitive advantage of cities. And in this case, to apply that to inner cities. So it was really fun. It was a great group and it's still in existing today. And so I've checked back at different point in time. So it was a blast. He was amazing. He asked me a question. He said, well, tell me about women businesses and tell me about black business. That's what everyone knows about black business. Let me just tell you about this and I'll do a little bit of research. And I did some research. And so we did that. And that was good for the time being. I turned that research into a book that's called The History of Black Business. Hmm. And so after I graduated, I said, hey, look, the study is so good. I think everyone should know this. We can write a book. What do you think about that? And he wrote me a check. And he was like, go and let me know what you need. Well, I was working at that time (laughs) and I didn't get the book back. So I sent the check back. I said, I am going to write the book, but I'm sending the check back now. Two years later, I wrote the book. The book came out. And I'm glad that I wrote it because it really is a summary of the history of black business in America up until that time, which was like 1998. So that's Michael Porter to me. He's inspirational. He's rigorous. He's a real person. Now, we were lucky to be at HBS at that time, right? Because we had Clay Christensen, first year, a legend, right? We had Howard Stevenson, right? We had Bill Solomon. All these are legends that uh, over the course of, I guess, then till now, 
they've come out with theories and I think have changed HBS for the better. So I got a chance to be around a lot of great professors and I think I got my money's worth. Yeah. Yeah. There were definitely some big names there. I did not get into Salman's class. That was very hard to get into. So I ended up taking that class with a different professor who had come out of the cell phone industry, if I remember right. All right. So then you went to CGI after HBS. So how did that fit into the Martin Hunt master plan? So a guy named Charles Rosati, who was kind of a World War II whiz kid and graduated from HBS, came back to HBS and he was pitching this firm, American Management System. So it was Mm -hmm. before CGI bond. American management systems. And I bought into that, right? So uh, okay. he was talking about how technology and computers would change the world. American management systems was all about getting technology into business and all the work around that in order to help businesses be more effective. I was coming off working for Professor Porter, which is strategy, strategy. I thought I was pretty good in strategy. And I was like, you know what? Strategy and technology. Those are two of the hallmarks of what I believe helps make a nice, disruptive, value-creating business. I would love to go work for him. And so mm-hmm. Charles Rosati, I thought, was a special guy at that time. He later on went to become the head of the IRS, I believe. It was a great firm. It was one of those startups that grew at 25% for 20 years mm-hmm. before they were acquired. So it was one of those tech firms that was part of that wave, the Wiz Kids World War II wave that kind of helped add technology to American business. How did you then end up at Exelon? Exelon. So after a while, I was like, look, I want to do something bigger. I want to be part of the change of the world. What could I possibly do? So I was restless. And also the life of a consultant weighs high. It's hard. I was like, honey, I want to have a child. We want to start a family. And my Mm. wife was like, well, we're not starting a family until you're not doing consulting. That ended consulting. (laughs) So I started to look around a mentor of mine or a family friend or a person heard that I was looking. I heard that they were going through or taking this company through deregulation, electricity in Chicago. And I was like, well, if they're going through deregulation, that means a lot to me. That means the industry is going to change. I'm going to like that. I'd be part of the strategy group. I'm going to like that. So all of those things made me really want that job. And I, interviewed for the job, talked to the senior management, and they were able to bring me on board. It was great in Chicago. Now, when I got there, the person that brought me there, who was a mentor and a hero, Leo Mullen, left right. to go become the CEO of, of Delta. Oh, oh, that Delta. Was, yeah, yeah, sorry. And he hired Jim. And he hired yeah. Jim as a CFO. He was like, hey, if you want to come down to Atlanta, you can. Or if you want to interview. And I did. I Blew down. I talked to Jim for a little bit and I decided to stay in Chicago because we were already committed to there. We had friends there. We knew that was going to happen. And we took Unicom, which was the parent company of ComEd, through right. deregulation. It was amazing. It was yeah. absolutely amazing. How did you get yourself up to speed on the energy sector? Because that was new for you, right? See, the good thing about our class is that you had a bunch of experts. Yeah. And the good thing about HBS is you always felt you can call people, A. Mm. B, you always felt that you can break down a business. What's the value chain of an energy company, right? Strategically, what are we talking about? How is this industry going to change? So I said, well, you have generation, transmission, distribution, a services company. And if you understand that value chain and you start to break that down and you understand the dynamics of what was happening through deregulation, then 
you understood the thesis for the change that was going to happen to the company. And for me, that was enough to kind of qualify me to have yeah. enough tools, but also to learn on the job, right? So we got there and we had outstanding people. It was the largest nuclear fleet in the country. Mm. And they had stranded cost. We sold off their fossil generation for $4 billion. And then we did a merger for $16 billion. So mm. it was an amazing time. And I got a chance to kind of pick and choose what I wanted to do. So the very first thing was cost cutting, $200 million in like a very short period of time. So that process of a large organization, understanding the value chain, being able to work with an outside consultant, it was Booz Allen in this case, but we were the strategy group to cut $200 million from the budget. That was amazing. And then to learn that we actually cut 100 million because the other hundred was already people wanted to pre-spend it. And I was like, you know, a strong CEO can make a hundred million dollars by just saying, no, no, we're not going to carry a budget over. We're going to cut the budget and we're going to move forward. And so I learned a lot around how to manage a large business, how budgets work and how they can be abused, how to kind of bring an organization back in compliance with what you're trying to do. And then also to help them move to a competitive environment, which you have a nuclear fleet, right? So as far away from competition as you can get would probably have been that nuclear fleet. And we're bringing them to a competitive energy market. And mm -hmm. so we did that. And we sold off the fossil generation. So we had the base load. And then we did a merger with the other largest nuclear power producer, Pico, in Philadelphia to form Exelon. And I got a chance to do that. It was amazing because everything was going on in the country. Bill was president. He had some issues, right? Bill did. And Rahm Emanuel left to go to Wasserstein and Perella. And his big deal was this deal. So he was on the deal team. Hmm. So I'm sitting there across from Rahm and he's telling his stories. <laughs> and you're thinking that you're doing something great in a great industry, which is power. Everyone yeah. needs power. Major cities need to have consistent power. It doesn't have rolling blackouts and things. So I really got a chance to see a lot. Yeah. And then you ended up over at Bank of America. Yes. So for something completely different again. Completely different from the standpoint of it's just another value chain. So how mm. do you manage that? What are you thinking? And I'd already had been in the strategy group here in strategy work with Porter. I was helping start a strategy group there, MBNA. MBNA kind of grew up in Delaware. It started mm. in Maryland, but it grew up in AMP in Delaware. So it's our internet startup. Started from almost nothing. Mr. Lerner put $150 million down. He started to grow. Affinity Marketing was kind of born with MBNA. I had seen this because a lot of people from my high school went to go work there. And then all of a sudden, they're making a million dollars a year because they stayed at the same company they went to high school. And I'm coming back with a Harvard MBA. And they're like, well, you're the outside guy. What do you... I mean... Yeah. But I did no strategy. So I heard about a job from a friend. I said, it's in my hometown. If it's in my hometown, I should know about it. It's not DuPont, but let me fly in, see. I flew in and I said, look, I can do a lot of good here. I know a lot about strategy. If you give me this job, I'll take it. They gave it to me and I was there. Or see? I was almost there. It took me 30 days to convince my wife. So we drove around yeah. Delaware and she was like, you know, we're going to have to find a city. And I was like, well, kind of like a suburb of Philadelphia. So we drove around. I uh, looked in lots of places, the main line and things. It finally found a place in Delaware that was acceptable from a um, international population and all that. Stuff. Where is she from? She's from Chile. So she's half Chilean, half Dutch. I met her at HBS. Okay. First year. So first year, you probably met her, right? She knows I've, five different I've, languages. Yeah, I've definitely yeah. met her. Yeah, there I just didn't go. know where she was from. Yeah, yeah. she's from Chile. Great she's woman. 
Good to hear you say that about your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Happily married, two kids, two grown kids. Great. Yep. Yeah. So when did you decide that you were going to make this jump into the venture capital private equity world? So I didn't view it as that. I view it as me after spending a lot of time and a lot of resources and paying back my debt, yeah, school debt and buying a house in the car I wanted and everything was working perfectly. And yeah. I said, well, is this what you came here to do? You want to be an entrepreneur. So when are you going to be an entrepreneur? And can you add value there? And while I was at HBS and even afterwards, I'd watch year after year, 80 to 100 search fund guys, private SPACs, buy a company and run it. Said I could probably do that. So I called him up, talked to him, and I was like, I think I could do that. So I put together a program office, the same thing that I had done in mergers acquisition for a Fortune 500 company. And then again at MBNA, so two Fortune 500 companies, I was going to do for myself and go find an appropriate spinoff or company that I thought I could make a difference in the world with. And so I left my job, asked my wife, <laughs> left my job with her full backing and started HWI Partners, which I was a consultant at first. So I consulted on one hand and I started my search fund and self-funded a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So that gave me better economics and things. So I had HWI Search Fund, HWI Partners, and HWI Technologies that finally did the deal. So three years later, we purchased the company. That was the company in Florida. Yeah, the company in Florida. Yeah. Custom Cable Industries and HWI Technologies purchased that. It was a spinoff from Steelcase is a, a large furniture manufacturer. Um, they were spinning it off. It could have been an auction type of situation, but I knew how Fortune 500 companies strategically thought. So yeah. I was like, let me tell you what Martin Hunt can do by buying this company. You'll have no headaches, right? I'm going to pay this amount. And I knew the amount that was on their books. And yeah. so I kind of priced it not high, not low, but just right. And I was like, here's my plan for the company. We're going to grow and we're going to do this. And here's the plan. So that's what you'll get. You got a chance to talk to the you know, CEO, the management team. And uh, I got buy-in there. And we were the choice, the buyer of choice. So this is back in the era. I'm remembering my timetables, right? There was that whole period of time where all the product companies wanted to go into services, right? So you have a company that makes office desks and that's right. You know, and other equipment, and they wanted to go into the cabling piece because that was a value-added <laughs> services, right? And then they probably got into right. it and realized, we don't really like this. And then along came Martin Hunt <laughs> to say, I'll take it off your hands. There you go. This is a hard to do. Why do we get into this strategically? What are we doing? All that. Yes. So I understood that, and uh, it was a good thing. It was a manufacturing company, so it was structure cable. So it would assemble cables on a customized basis. And then it would also do the installation. So it would right. wire up a whole building and things of that sort, but it would also make the customized wires, both copper, optical fiber for telecom. So telecom has these regional offices that have hundreds of miles of wires all in them, and they have to be exactly the right size, exactly going to the pieces of equipment. We were able to do that very well. And we put that on the internet so they can do it on the internet. We had a whole catalog of engineered things so they can buy it like that, made it easy for them. And, uh, you know, it was good business. You dreamed of being a CEO from early on. Now you're a CEO, bought this company. What was it actually like in the well, day to day? I had always seen myself as a CEO. So at HBS, 800 cases, you're the protagonist. What are you going to do, right? Right. Grass cutting, I was a CEO, right? 
when I wrote my book, I self-published it. I started a company, Knowledge Express. I was CEO of that, right? Before I bought this company, we had HWI partners. So I was running a consulting firm and then HWI search fund. So this was just another step. Let me tell you a good story of the like the first real day and then you'll kind of get a sense for it. So I have all these frameworks. I go through all this issue. We have the strategy, right? Everything's perfect. I'm going in for a Monday morning first real meeting where I'm the CEO that is new and they know that I'm coming. I've been there before. I had some town halls. I answered questions, but this is the first time. So I fly in on a Saturday. I go to this place, 250 employees. I start and, to walk. and where in Florida is this? Tampa. Tampa. Okay. So I walk in, beautiful place. I walk outside. I walk outside first and I'm like, oh, there's some trash in the dumpster. Things are coming out. Okay. I go inside through the security, all this. And I'm like, I go to the employee cafe and like, you know, the coffee looks old. It just, everything, it wasn't as clean and nice as what you would expect it needs to be for a top flight place. Right. So that Saturday night and that Sunday, I cleaned it. Wow. Alone. I went to the store, bought big coffee grab. I mean, the whole thing, bought very nice stuff, put it all around. I was super tired, went outside, threw stuff in a dumpster, cleaned up everything. So I thought it was the way tight ships would run. So that Monday morning, I come in and I'm tired and I pull the team in. They'd heard me before talk about strategy and what I was going to do. So they knew that. And I said, let me tell you a story. So I told them a story of me making the coffee that morning, buying the coffee grabs and all that and picking up the trash. And I was like, I did that, right? Because they were surprised. I did that because I knew I rarely would ever have to do that again, because I have a management team that understands that we model the behaviors and we model the standard that we want our manufacturing folks to have. Are there any questions? And from that day on, the kind of esprit de corps went up in that group. They made sure everything was always clean. Things were done correctly and right. They understood when I asked a question what I was asking for and, and the way it was. And the workers respond immediately with greater productivity. Yeah. So that was my experience at Custom Table. It was 250 hardworking, great people in America doing manufacturing for Verizon, AT&T, Department of Defense, et cetera, et cetera. That's the way America should run. So what ended up happening with that company? It got sold. We won a very large contract. Yep. I turned it from being a majority contract to a diverse contractor. And my shareholders didn't think it needed to be diverse any longer. And so we fought for six years and came to a conclusion. And that's how it exited. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, I mean, doing work for the telecom companies, they were always looking for diverse suppliers. And the government, which is always looking for diverse suppliers, that feels like you an error in judgment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> but Money is money. $80 million contract would do things to people. And so you're dealing with lots of forces. Yeah. So this was back when, when you sold the company? 2016, finally exited. So we got out of the actual company in 2010 or 2011 or 12, whenever the first law suit kind of went over, but it went to 2016. Wow. That's a long, long tail. Yeah. Yeah. If you're good at litigation, you push it out. Yeah. And that's what they did. So I did things in the meantime. It was a long haul. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, fast forward to today. So help us understand sort of what the last few years have been like. Yeah. So 2016, I joined a investment bank that my family owned part of. Did that for three years. 
I had an assignment there that was going to help Temple University start a commercialization program. Okay. So I asked to do that. I said, hey, I'll do this. I'll consult to you guys, but I want to go and do this thing for Temple because I think this is early stage companies, which is what the firm did, investment banking. Temple is doing that, but they're trying to roll out. So I joined up with a international accelerator, Smart Invest. We joined with Temple and we ran their program for two years. From that program, there was a lot of firms that got funded. One of them went public in 2021. And I thought to myself, hey, look, we did a wonderful job here. We clearly have skills at building teams and that stage of companies and iBank I came from. So all the skills that I've had kind of culminated into that. I said, I think I want to start a venture capital firm. So yeah. I did a private equity firm already. Let's try a venture capital firm. Swan Lab is a international venture capital firm that started as Giza Ventures in 1992. They had a whole bunch of funds, but in 2016, they branched out to a Spanish fund, some of the investors called Swan Lab Giza. The investors that I knew, knew them well. And I was like, hey, I'm starting an African-American fund in the United States. And I love what Swan Lab has done. We have investors in common. Wouldn't it be great if we took that same framework from Israel that you took to Spain? Why don't we bring it to America and make this a uh, premier African-American-owned venture capital firm? And they said yes. And so that's what we're working on. Our first fund, $100 million fund, B2B tech, and kind of the same playbook. Yeah. Yeah. Certain industries or just B2B tech? B2B tech. We like to focus in on, I call it H3IT healthcare, internet, impact investment, and IT. So those are four broad things that we like to do, but there are seven different verticals that we look at, right? So all the new technologies, whether it be cyber, blockchain, what I call reality tech, we can get into that for a different day, but it kind of makes real reality in the future will always have data attached to it, Mm -hmm. whether that be ever present or whatever. It's kind of all that there. And the way we look at companies that we look at is we look at the value chain and say, how are you disrupting something? And is that something that we think will scale quickly and that we can do well? So Swan Lab has done that very well globally using the same playbook here. We're adding a few things to it (laughs) from the HBS playbook, but I think you get the gist. And I think that there's a wonderful opportunity, I believe, for folks that can see in multi-dimensional talent So if you can see talent in that's gender different, that's racially different and all these things and bring that together for Series A financing, that's Mm -hmm. something that America has had a very, very hard time doing. And so our firm hopefully has a sustainable competitive advantage around that, as well as just simple B2B tech, which we will continue to do and choose the best, but inclusive of all the best. Yeah. Are you uh, still in fundraising mode then? We are. Yeah. And are you actively looking for investments yet? Or are you still purely in fundraising mode? No, we're doing both at yeah. the same time because we don't have the luxury to wait. Right. right. So we went through a two kind of waves where we had groups that we wanted to invest in. We couldn't because we didn't have the fund, but we recommended out some people invested in. Those have done extremely well. So we think we're pretty good at it. And now we're coming up on a second wave that we think it would be a nice time to close. So we're shooting for the end of the year. So of all the people that I've talked to, I think you're number 31 in my podcast. (laughs) Your description of what we've gone through sounds 
more purposeful and intentional, I think, than just about anybody else I've spoken to. Does it feel that way to you? Usually ask this question of, was your journey more intentional or more opportunistic? And everybody says, oh, it's been opportunistic. It feels like both. Mm. And I think when I talk to people, when I talk to my son or my daughter, I tell them, hey, make your best plan. (laughs) Focus on people, focus on skills and allow for opportunity to be in the right place at the right time. So the luckiest people are those that work the hardest, right? The most blessed people are those folks that are putting in the hard work. I don't think it's been purposeful from the standpoint of there's no way I could have envisioned when the different changes were going to happen. There's no way I could have seen that I was going to work for Michael Porter. There's no way I could have foreseen that I'd be working in deregulation, nuclear power. There's no way that I would have foreseen that I'd be back in my home state working for a Fortune 500 company that grew up when I was leaving for college. There probably was a way for me to know that I was going to run a business. But then again, no way for me to know that in 2021, venture capital is at a crossroads of trying to close the gap. America is trying to close the gap. I think the way we put it is we don't play 1950s basketball. Mm -hmm. We play in 2022 and we're not worried what color our team is or what sex they are. We just go with the best team. I think there's a strategic opportunity for America to really act in a way that it hasn't been able to in the past. And so there's no way to foresee that. I don't know if I would have been able to say three years ago, now would have been a good time to kind of start a $100 million fund, first fund that we think will be able to deploy quickly. And our problem is how we do that in a way that is consistent with good portfolio construction over time. So, but great opportunities out there. So I don't think there's any way to, I could have foreseen that. So I always tell people, be the best that you could possibly be, but at the same time, be open to what you love and opportunity because disruption happens at times that you're not going to be able to predict. Across all the things that you've done, are there a few strengths that you really look at that you say, I've been able to leverage these consistently in these very different situations? Yeah, I'd say parenting, right? Parenting and being a good husband, right? I think to have a relationship, which is easier than having kids, have a relationship where you have kids and manage your kids in a way where you instill all the values that you want to be and want to do, and they hold you to it. I think understanding the stakes there, and when I grew up, both my parents were teachers. And so they were always teaching. There was always a teachable moment. They were always giving. I felt literally rich all the time. Whenever I needed help, they were there. So being able to do that for your kids taught me a lot about how to manage a business. Yeah. Which is why that day one at Custom Cable was so important because it was about setting a tone, following through with values, and just trying to be the best that you can, knowing that it's never perfect, right? There's going to be strengths and weaknesses, and you're just going to work on them as you go to create strong humans. So I'd say my kids have taught me and are teaching me. That's like my secret weapon because it creates a link to a different generation, creates a link to the way things are done today in their point of view. And I can create a link between all that I know over the last my lifetime, what they're telling me now. And I can see trends and you can see trends and you can anticipate and it gives you judgment and everything. So I'd say that. I know it's a little bit weird, but I think being able to set the tone for an organization, follow through and be true to that is easier said than done. Mm, Absolutely. What have you worked on developing? Everything, right? I'm always developing. So 
if you were to go through my career in 2003, I went back to HBS for Entrepreneur's Toolkit before I jumped off. 2018, I went back for the first fundamentals in venture capital and private equity before I jumped off. And I make it a point to always, this thing that I'm on with Giselle at the Olin Business School, right, at WashU is closing the funding gap and working on that. I mean, I think it all needs new things. It all needs that strategic look of how do we make changes in a system that's pretty good, but can be a lot better. And I think I learned from Professor Porter how to get that done. I was president of the Harvard Business School of Philadelphia, dealing with nonprofits and running a nonprofit. You learn a lot about the community. So just bringing all that together. What do you look for in people that you seek to surround yourself with professionally? Trust and skill, probably in that order. Hard skill, soft skill. (laughs) All different types of skills. So I think skilled people, as you know, I believe in education. So always wanting to get better every day, always willing to take in new information. I think that's part of a skill, right? And then there's a certain level of if they've done that for 20 years or 10 years or something, you'll see expertise coming through competitive advantages. And I love to hire for folks that bring competitive advantages to the table and build a team that no one's perfect, but you're Mm. building people with sustainable is in a way that gives the group a good chance at success. So that's what I look for. So trust, which is, there are lots of ways to test for that. And then kind of the skill set of understanding that they can learn. So when I talk to people, I ask them a lot of times, I say, well, how much stuff do you know? They say, a lot. I know a lot. I'm pretty smart. I did this. I did that. They're wonderful. Tell me what you don't know. Is that bigger? And they say, tell me what you don't even know that you don't even know (laughs) and how you plan on addressing that in this role. Right. So I think it's just keeping an open mind, being able to apply yourself, being able to put in the work to be able to trust that intent is always correct. Yeah. Okay. Two last questions. If you were going to go back and give your 10th grade, I want to go to HBS self advice. What advice would you give your 16 year old self? Do what you think is right and leave it at that. Don't look back. Don't worry too much. They probably have better information than I do. So this is what I tell my son, (laughs) daughter, right? They probably know better than I do. So I'm like, assume that your judgment is pretty good. It will get better. If you have questions, ask. If you want perspective, ask. And then you have to choose and be happy with it. So I wouldn't tell them much except for decide what you want and kind of make that happen and go for it. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What more generally, what advice would you want to leave? our audience with today? One thing that kind of stays with me is always get better every day. Anything the mind can conceive and believe, the mind can achieve. Remember that and always at our age, look back 10 years and say, what would I have thought then if someone told me it was today? And with that, that's the level of optimism you should have for the next 10 years, right? So always challenge people around that vision, always to have that vision because you know, in my view, Things will always improve, be innovative and things of that sort, especially with, I think we live in a wonderful country that has the opportunity to do more good in the future than the past. Yeah. And that it's hard work. And so if we put in the hard work, we're the folks that can make things better so we can own our own future. Good enough. We'll stop there. So I think, Martin, you and I have known each other for 30 years, and I think I learned more about you today than I've learned in the prior (laughs) 30 years minus a day. (laughs) We've clearly done a terrible job of keeping up over the years. We're probably even spending much time together when we were in school together. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
Yeah. All right. Well, have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. You have a great day. I'd like to thank Martin for joining me today and sharing his accomplished career journey and learnings. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.